So, big news, eh? The biggest. The best. It's the newsiest of news. So you're going to tell me about it? Am I? Am I? Am I? You should. I will. So... Yes? Uh, about that news? What news? The big news. Oh, that. Yeah, impressive, isn't it? I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, it can't be that important then. Mm, fair enough. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy on this what is apparently International Podcast Day. How appropriate. Is there a patron saint of podcasting? Oh, there must be by now. Haven't looked it up. Nevertheless, it may be it may be a special day for podcasting, but it's it's, it's a regular episode for us. I am Josh Edison. They are Dr. M. Dentith. Uh, Together we fight crime. No, mm, no, sorry. Right. Actually, we discuss conspiracy theories on the internet. The mm. fighting crime thing is something we're meant to be keeping secret. I yes. keep forgetting vigilante for justice is not meant to be made public. Vigilante justice is not ones, meant yes. to be made public. Mm. So you have some some big news, but we're going to tease it out a little bit, are we? We are. Just, so we're just going to say. Out all we're going to say this week is <clears throat> I have a job. Ah. I have a job as well. Yeah, but, but you've that's had a job news. for a while. Yeah, no, I've that's just true. been a gigging academic philosopher for quite some time. This is a job job, and I don't mean a euphemism for poo. This is a right. job in the sense of an ongoing permanent position kind of dealio. Now, the reason why we're dragging this out is in part because despite the fact I claim to not be a suspicious person, until such time I've signed a contract, I still kind of think it's going to be yanked away at me at the very last minute. I have seen a contract. I haven't seen a contract in English. I've only seen a machine translated version of said contract. But until such time I sign on the dotted line, and it's countersigned, stamped, sent to the moon, and all that jazz that contracts do... I'm still, for some reason, slightly suspicious about it just disappearing and the job ceasing to exist. So I don't want to prejudge things by going on and on about the job like I'm doing right now. Right. But I have a job, and that's all we're going to say. Well, then let's not tempt fate and um, dive straight into an episode, I think. We've got an oldie but a goodie. And by goodie, I mean not actually yeah, very but good. Say, we, we, we've got an oldie. I am willing to agree with you yeah. on that point. But whether it's a goodie, I mean, Tim Brooke Taylor died earlier this year, Josh, so frankly, calling it a goodie is a slap in the face to British comedy. Although actually re-watching the goodies, the goodies is a slap in the face to British comedy. I mean, it's, what, 40 years old now, so probably to be expected it doesn't measure up uh, to the standards of... So anyway, we're getting off track. We have a thing to talk about. Let's talk about it now. Right, we have a thing to talk about, and that thing is loose change. Now, if you've been paying attention to our Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre posts, loose change just sort of has kept coming up. In part because we keep on talking about papers written about conspiracy theories written mm. pre and just after September 11th, 2001. And so we keep on making jokes about people not writing about 9-11 before 9-11 occurred and then got rather curious about the fact that it's only around about 2006 that people start discussing 9-11 conspiracy theories in their academic work. And the one thing we keep on coming back to time and time again is the documentary, and some people may want to put that in scare quotes, Loose Change, which, if it didn't start the 9-11 truth movement off, is certainly taken to be a caricature of what 9-11 truthers believe. Yes, so 2005 <clears throat> is when the first edition of Loose Change came out. And yes, as you say, it didn't, it didn't start the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Apparently, if you knew where to look on the internet, there were numerous sites with, with the, the sort of material out there. But it's, it's credited with sort of with popularizing it, with bringing it into the mainstream. Apparently, it's also credited with doing the same thing to Alex Jones. Yeah, the Alex Jones thing is an interesting punt because a lot of other people say Mike Drudge and the Drudge Report is what brought Alex Jones into the mainstream. 
So depending on mm. when you became interested in Alex Jones, Alex Jones gets mainstreamed by this. He gets mainstreamed by the judge, the, the judge report, the drudge report. He gets mainstreamed by the director of Waking Life, Richard Linklater, who used to feature him in all of his films as a background character. Alex Jones has been mainstreamed by a lot of people. In fact, some mm. people 40 years from now claim that we mainstreamed him on this very podcast. It's hoping. Uh, yeah, so maybe it was a combination of things, but certainly he did uh, get a bit of attention for promoting Loose Change. Um, well, he was and indeed, also he was an the producer of one of the editions. Documentaries, because people seem to forget this, but for a very long period of time, Alex Jones produced long form documentaries on the internet. He doesn't do so many of them now. So it was kind of his bon mot to make a documentary about how evil X or Y was. And so Loose Change is something he could be act as a producer for was a quite natural fit given the topic of Loose Change. Have we actually mentioned what the topic of Loose Change is for people who may not be aware of the documentary? Yes, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of assuming everybody knows what it is, but then I guess, I mean, it's 2020, so there are people at university now who weren't alive when 9-11 happened and who would have would would have been in preschool when Loose Change came out. So yes, maybe we should um, should go through it. It's it's a, a documentary or a series of documentaries that promote the the inside job uh, me hop theory. The idea that um, elements probably within the Bush administration actually made nine eleven happen, didn't simply know about it and let it happen. It was written and directed by a fellow named Dylan Avery. And um, who who is quite open about the fact that it began life as a work of fiction. He thought he was he was sort of you know a budding a budding screenwriter who couldn't get any work and thought he had this idea. You know, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be cool to make some sort of a thriller where somebody discovers that nine um, eleven was actually an inside job? And as he did research for it, he then became convinced that nine eleven actually was an inside job. And so, instead of making a, a work of fiction, made a documentary. Now, that's his version of events. Well, um, it's one of his version hmm. of events. There is another version of events, which was he was at film school. He wanted to make an action thriller based upon nine eleven being the result of a conspiracy. His professors persuaded him that on a film school budget, he wouldn't be able to make a film of that type, budget being too small for the scope of the film he wanted to make. And so he decided to make a documentary instead. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the cynical view of it is that he came to the realisation that um, a low-budget action film, if you could even make it, wouldn't get nearly as much attention as something that claimed to be real life in the way that the number of horror movies claimed to be based on a, on a true story and so or on. Or so every forth. Dan Brown book. Mm. So he, he made his documentary. He released it in 2005. He released a second edition of it in 2006. This is the, the second edition recut. He released Loose Change, the final cut in 2007, which was a, 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 a slicker affair, I believe, produced by Alex Jones. Um, with I think a different narrator as well was supposed yes, to although be. Although initially it was meant to be Charlie, Charlie Sheen. Sheen. Now yes. Charlie Sheen you may be aware of as a sitcom actor and also star of the greatest action comedy of all time, Hot Shots and Hot Shot Part Du. Mm -hmm. He is also a fairly major nine eleven truther, and indeed one of the favourite bits of my PhD thesis is a quote about Charlie Chain. Charlie Chain? I'm about to say Charlie Chain, which is a completely different person. We're not going to talk about him, though. No. A quote about Charlie Sheen in that when Obama took office, a whole bunch of people were trying to get a meeting between Obama and Charlie Sheen. They have a sit down about releasing information about the events of September 11th. And this journalist wrote... It was some when someone with the gravitas of a Charlie Sheen speaks, you have to listen, which to my mind is still one of the most ridiculous sentences ever expressed in the English lang language. I think that may be true. But yes, so we have Loose Change First Edition, Loose Change Second Edition, Loose Change Final Cut. In 2009 came Loose Change 9-11 and American Coup, which was sort of another new version of it. 
Um, then there was the 2015 version, which was an edited down for television version of an American coup. And then in 2017, there was an HD re-release of Loose Change Second Edition, which is the one we watched, because if you want to watch Loose Change Final Cut, uh, you have to actually pay for it. It's a video on demand thing, whereas the second edition is free to view on YouTube. Now, we could have paid to watch the final cut. Uh, we have patron money. Uh, we just didn't want to. Yeah, basically. basically. Case of, the case is going to be made in all of these editions anyway. We know what the salient differences are. There's no real need to funnel money to the creator of this video. Now, so I do we, want to point out... This video has a very interesting history, because as we go back to the first edition back in 2005, this video was not initially released on YouTube. It was released on the competitor to YouTube at the time, Google Video. Because back in those days, Google Video was the thing that Google was using to promote videos online. Google eventually buys YouTube, and Loose Change appears on it. But the original edition appears on Google Video, and all of the metadata around the original release of Loose Change is now lost. So Avery has claimed that with views on Google Video, DVDs being sold, and piracy, over 100 million people have watched or at least had access to this video, a number which I think seems suspiciously inflated. Mm. That is an interesting point, though, because, I mean, this was pre-YouTube becoming the only game in town. I think putting it on the internet, they originally, you know, that was just sort of a thing you could do, but it was mostly designed to be distributed as DVDs, but then the internet took off, and that's how it um, really started doing the rounds. So... Yeah, I mean the different in terms of the differences between the editions, um, there there are a few. The, the story changes a little. Uh, mostly, they just become more and more polished. Um, the second one of the things the second edition did is got rid of a bunch of citations of like Wikipedia articles and replaced them with actual news articles from news sites and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, the story changes and evolves a little bit, and that puts more emphasis on some bits than others. And we should say that this is the the the, the documentary we're going to discuss is kind of the state of 9-11 conspiracy theories around 2006. Um, and the, the 9-11 truth is still out there. The version we're watching is from 2017, which is a little bit odd. Well, it is, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's just the HD version of the 2006 version. And But yes, the, at any rate, the... Um, the 9/11 Truth movement has moved on quite a bit, so their arguments have changed, have moved on since this since loose change. So it shouldn't be taken as here's what 9/11 Truthers believe now, but it's certainly um, a significant document in the in the history of 9/11 Trutherism. So we've both watched it. What did you think, just overall? It's I'm just asking questions. The movie? Mm, it very much is. I don't know. I don't know if Loose Change actually set the template for that style of argument or if the template already existed and it was simply following it, but it very definitely follows the template. The, the thing, you know, just going all the way to, to recent times, Jerry Brownlee's list of interesting facts, it's very much that style. It's all, it's all innuendo. It, it makes very few concrete claims. There are only a few times where it actually says, this is the truth. It just asks a lot of rhetorical questions. It does a lot of sort of hinting by sort of bringing up one fact and then bringing up another fact, implying a connection between the two without ever actually stating it. Um, in terms of actual filmmaking style, though, I, I think it very much did become the template. Uh, it's it's the it's the um, voiceover, either Dylan Avery or the actor they got for the final cut. Um, all, all voiceover, sort of slightly ominous music in the background, and then just a, a almost slideshow of um, uh, screen captures and clips and images and what have you, uh, clips from news sites and so on, um, illustrating what's being talked about. Now, what I find particularly interesting about Loose Change as a document in the 9-11 Truth movement is that I think a lot of people who decide to write on 9-11 conspiracy theories think of Loose Change as the canon 
of 9-11 conspiracy theories. Because even as you point out, maybe it isn't the origination point or origin point, which is the proper way of saying what I just tried to say, mm. of the just asking questions trope. It is probably the most famous example of a 9-11 conspiracy theory. And so I think a lot of scholars look at loose change and go, oh, well, this is what 9-11 truthers believe. And thus, that's why we've got this rather weird characterization of the 9-11 truth movement as simply being people who ask questions but don't provide any developed answers. Because no matter our particular perspectives, on 9-11 conspiracy theories. When you go and actually read what sophisticated 9-11 truthers believe, they aren't just asking questions, they are saying this bit of evidence is not explained by the official theory, here's why, or the official theory cannot explain this particular thing here, and I'm going to give you a story as to why our theory can. Mm. Yes, in fact, maybe, I mean, we've been, we've done 9-11 more than once in this podcast, because of course we have, but um, maybe, maybe at some stage we should check in at, uh, on the exactly what the state of 9-11 trutherism is these days. But but not today. Today we're actually looking at loose change. Um, shall we... Shall we give our, our sort of opinions on it at the start or save that till the end? I say we, well, I actually think we probably have signaled what our opinions well, were yes. throughout our the episode. Our opinions are not high. Let's, so let's, let's, save our, let's save our actual yeah. gut feels towards the end and, and deal with the minutiae of the claims in Loose mm. Change. Yep, so it starts, uh, the first, I, I didn't actually check the time, the first five minutes or possibly more of the, the whole movie are... Just a, a, a classic list of interesting facts. He just um, Dylan Avery narrating, just 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 introduces a whole bunch of facts. Doesn't one after the other. Doesn't say they're all connected, but obviously the implication is that it's all building to something. It's it. All, I suppose it possibly almost counts as a gish gallop, and that it's I. I, I, I didn't realise it was going to be that long or I would have been counting from the start exactly how many um, claims he introduces. But there's a bunch of them, they come up quickly and obviously to um, address any of them in depth would take an awfully long time. But he talks about, um, he mentions Operation Northwoods, which we've talked about in this podcast in the past, the plans uh, plans which were never enacted um, against, it was Cuba, wasn't it? Yes, Yes. And in uh, those days, Fidel Castro was the biggest threat to Western yeah. democracy. Uh, so one, one of the proposed um, operations in Operation Northwoods was apparently substituting an aeroplane with a drone to fake the, the destruction of the aeroplane. Um, it talked uh, it, it brought up um, footage of a remote controlled aeroplane which and this this was a real thing um, people took to research sort of how aeroplanes crash and so on uh, people actually rigged a, a genuine airliner uh, with remote control and crashed it to see what happened um, it mentions the fact that the World Trade Center is shown in crosshairs on both a FEMA and a Department of Justice document in the 90s doesn't point out that this is after the first World Trade Center bombing, which people yes, kind of he, forget happens sometimes. The documentary, and by the documentary, I'm going to say he, as in Dylan Avery, mm. wants to suggest that there's something really suspicious about the fact that the WTC is used as an icon for terrorism. But of course, it makes absolute sense to use the Twin Towers as an icon for terrorism, given they were targets of terrorist attacks in the, in the, in the past, especially since... I was then watching the documentary going, so how else do you signal a terrorist icon in a easy, catchy, and easy to understand fashion? The Twin Towers seems to be obvious. People have tried to blow, blow those up before. Without them, what kind of symbol would you, would you actually use? Mm. But I mean, and this, this sort of becomes the theme of the, um, of the whole movie. Uh, it, it introduces a fact which is. Uh, out, out of context is implied to be sinister and doesn't go into any possible non-sinister uh, meaning for it. Uh, but he brings up the project for the New American Century, which I'm sure we must have mentioned at some point in the past when we were yeah, talking so about the Yeah, so this is a a think tank's project for increasing American imperialism, which did feature people like your Dick Cheney's and the like, who all went, look, the only way to 
project American power in the coming century, that being the century we're in now, the document belongs to the 20th century, would for there to be an event in America which basically was an attack from the outside. That's the only way we think that we could we could justify wars overseas. This is taken to not be a document of something we would like to occur, but rather a document of things we are going to do when we're in power. So it's taken to be a prediction as opposed to speculate, rather than speculation that it actually appears to be. And then there's a bit more. This isn't a full list of all the stuff that comes up, but then there are also mentions various training exercises um, that that uh, various um, agencies had done in the past uh, of how they would deal with the case of if an aeroplane were to be flown into the World Trade Center or into the Pentagon. Um, and it mentions something which it comes back to right at the very end: the the increasing number of put options put on stock in various airlines and aeroplane manufacturers. I don't really know how the stock market works, but apparently a put option is essentially a bet that that stock is going to go down. Now, what's interesting about the stock market thing, which is actually related to the training exercises thing, is there's a base rate fallacy here. So Dylan Avery goes, look, the stock market put options were four times higher than usual on the day of 9-11, particularly around the kind of organizations trading from WTC1 and WTC2. So that is suspicious, but of course you end up going, yeah, but average compared to what? I mean, if it's average over a year, then being four times higher than the average sounds interesting. But if it turns out that four times the average also means on some days there were six or eight times the average elsewhere, then actually four times the average isn't that suspicious. You kind of need more data about the stock market in general for this four times the average to mean anything. And then sort of as the as the movie actually kicks into gear, it has an interview with Hunter S. Thompson, interesting enough, basically yeah, which, talking as about I, how... I put in the notes I was making, interview with noted paranoid Hunter S. Thompson. Mm, talking about the dodgy things that the US government has got up to, yeah, which, which it has, is, yeah, obviously. Yeah, it has, yeah. but at the same time, Hunter S. Thompson is not what we call a level-headed person you go to for commentary on these things. Hunter S. Thompson was a paranoid gun nut living in the back blocks of the US at this time. Mm. Um, and then it gets into it. Um, so I mean, there's, it's an hour and a half long. Um, so I'm not going to not going to do a full blow by blow. But um, uh, one of the first things that sh- uh, stuck out to me is it features right near the start, just just with no with no explanation, no fanfare at all. Just has a bunch of clips of buildings being demolished in controlled demolitions, and then a shot of one of the two towers falling down. And you know that 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 really set the tone right from the start. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't doesn't you know just leaves you to to draw the connection without actually making any claim of itself. Um, and then it goes. I mean, it it. it jumps around a lot to a bunch of different points, but it sort of it sticks to one topic at a time, I suppose. It right near the start he mentions Hani Hanjour, one of the terrorists who flew the plane into the Pentagon. Doesn't say a lot about him, but basically implies he wasn't much of a pilot. Um, in a kind of interesting way, in that they go and talk to the person who ran the pilot training school that Hajor went to to basically get his license verified in the US to allow him to fly Cessnas and the like. And the narration goes, look, he wasn't much of a pilot. But then when they interview the person behind the school, it's a case of, yeah, he was a below average pilot, but we still let him take planes out, which means, yeah, he wasn't much of a pilot, he was still a trained pilot mm. able to fly a plane. He just wasn't the best pilot on earth. And frankly, when you're just when your task is to simply fly a plane into a massive building, you don't need to be the best pilot in the world. You don't have mm. to land the plane, you just have to crash it. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so they sort of they mention him, and they don't spend a lot of time on him. Apparently, the final cut um, spends a lot more going into exactly what Honey Hanjua was all about. But it moves. Uh, so the, the first really big topic it covers is the Pentagon, the the, the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. Um, and you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with most of the arguments it makes. Claims that there were no traces of the plane left on the front lawn, which is just plain false. Um, and interestingly enough, it does eventually show photos of people taking wreckage off the lawn, um, although with the claim that the only bits of wreckage there were small enough that people could pick them up and carry them off. Although then one of the bits of wreckage they they talk about is a bit of an engine inside the building, which I don't believe you could just pick up and walk Mm. away with. Although that was, yeah, it sort of mentions a few things. Again, it's a little bit scattershot. It mentions some of these bigger bits of wreckage found inside the Pentagon. Uh, One of them in particular, it sort of compares a photograph of the part with a diagram of the part itself and shows how the diagram it's, it differs there are, there are particular bits of it that are a different shape than the thing in the diagram implying that it's something else I don't know um, and then there's a lot of talk of the whole left in the pentagon um, the, the idea that um, you'd, you'd expect a plane with a hundred foot wingspan to leave a much wider hole than the, the hole uh, that was there um, and then Again, I, I, I had in my notes that they've argued that the Pentagon was hit by a missile, not a plane. But again, they never really did. They sort of say, "Here's the hole in the, here's the hole in the Pentagon. Surely a plane would make a bigger hole. Here are some buildings that were hit by missiles." You and connect again, the dots. Sort of, sort of waggles the eyebrows and goes dot 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 yeah, without which actually they, making they the kind run. of do with WTC one and two. They talk about how there are eyewitnesses who claim to have seen planes that don't quite match commercial airliners, and then they never quite state it wasn't planes that hit the buildings. They simply mm. go, "Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it?" Yes, actually, eyewitness accounts show up a lot. They they mention they they give interviews with a bunch of eyewitnesses of the plane that hit the Pentagon, and uh, and all the witnesses they talk to tell describe a different plane. Basically, even one of them claiming they saw a helicopter, um, which I don't know what I don't really know what the implication we're supposed to get from that is. Um, for one thing, none of them say they saw a missile. They all claim they saw some sort of a plane. Um, you'd think if it, like if they were all crisis actors or something, surely they'd get their story straight. So I don't quite know how a bunch of eyewitnesses claiming, thinking they saw different things, helps the case. But again, they don't actually. They, they never. They never make a, a solid um, conclusion there. They just sort of present all this information to you. And indeed, they seem to prefer eyewitness accounts to any kind of expert testimony, mm. apart from the few cases where the experts say the things that they want them to say. Mm. Which is something you also find in a lot of pseudo-history, where you will get what we might call pre-anthropologists or bad historians. So amateur historians and people who were influential in the development of anthropology but weren't doing anthropology as we understand it today. And they go, look, these earlier, more eyewitness accounts of history are much more accurate than the contemporary scholarship which interrogates whether that original scholarship was any good. Which most academics will go, well, no, actually... Often the problem with those eyewitness accounts is that they kind of make a whole bunch of assumptions, and then those assumptions get confirmed by people saying, oh no, you must be right. And actually it's latter work which actually goes through and tries to work out what those assumptions are and whether they're doing any work in their accounts, which actually gets us much closer to the truth. There's a reason why we rely on experts. Mm. So the documentary at this point moves on to Building 7, good old Building 7. Um, the one thing that stuck out is that they said how it, it was there for a while and then it collapsed suddenly. And I cannot, is, is there another way for a building to collapse? I mean, maybe something they could crumble gradually. Well, no, Josh, so. we've all watched action films. You know that in action films, when a building starts to collapse, it makes really, really loud creaking mm. sounds. Which gives them enough time time, for the hero to make a speech, develop a last-minute plan, realise they've left someone behind, go rescue that person, and as soon as they leave the door, the building collapses behind them. So as we know from action films, buildings don't just collapse spontaneously, they give you an awful lot of warning. 
Mm. Now, uh, in talking about Building 7, it mentions the various agencies that worked out of Building 7 and the number of files, the number of sensitive files they had stored there, again, without drawing any particular conclusion for it, although... The, it eventually, re, re, when it gets to the end, we'll see they get to actual talk of motives, um, and this doesn't come up again. Um, presumably, no, because at the time, actually, it's... what we get at the end is gold. Mm, we do literally. So, I mean, I, at the time, it seems like they're implying that possibly, you know, one of the reasons they want they specifically wanted to destroy Building Seven to get rid of these files, but doesn't come up again. And then it makes the claim that Building 7, WTC1, and WTC2 are the only buildings to collapse due to a fire, and lists a whole bunch of other buildings that caught on fire and yet didn't collapse. And there, there, there's a lot we could talk about there, but I'm sure that's a, um, a, a particular facet of the 9-11 stuff that you're all familiar with. But then, then at this point in the movie, he decides to, let's ask the experts, what do the experts think? What do the experts think? Well, the first expert they talk to goes, oh, look, I've looked at the footage. It certainly does look a lot like a controlled death militia. But then 10 days later, they note that the same expert, having reviewed the footage and seen the evidence, goes, actually, no, it does look like it was internal collapse. And they go, oh, oh, they must have got to him. Mm. Whilst, of course, you might go, well, yes, initially upon seeing a building collapse after an event of this type, having never seen a building collapse due to a plane crash or bits of being, being carved out by rubble and a fire. You might go, well, actually, it does look an awful lot like controlled demolition. But upon reviewing the evidence, the same expert then might go, actually, now I've got more data, I can make a more informed choice as to which analysis I'm going to endorse. But Dylan Avery doesn't want people to change their minds based upon new data. He wants them to hold to their initial gut feel. Yeah, I, th I thought that was actually, that was quite a ballsy move. There was some chutzpah there to take an expert agreeing with you and then changing his mind to disagree with you and actually manage to paint that as something somehow sinister that actually supports your case. Um, it sort of mentioned some other experts. I know I noted the fact that whenever an expert who, whenever they talked about experts that didn't agree with them, that was always the phrase "so-called experts," whereas the experts who agreed with them were just expert experts. Um, and this is the point in the documentary where we get the idea that jet fuel can't melt steel beams. That I don't think that exact sentence ever came up, but there was a lot of talk about the melting temperature of jet fuel and the uh the sorry the burning temperature of jet fuel and the melting point of steel and they do that i even right in that section there's a lot of um variation between one minute they're talking about being able to melt steel and the next they're talking about being able to soften steel which of course is always the counterclaim no jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel but it does burn it enough to get soft enough that it wouldn't be able to bear the load that was placed upon it but and the other thing to note here is that they want to claim, they once again being Dylan Avery and the other people involved in the making of Loose Change, they keep on stating that the Twin Towers and WTC7 collapse because of fire. So what they don't talk about are the gigantic planes that flew into WTC mm. 1 and 2 and the bits of WTC, I can't remember which one it was, that actually fell and carved in part of the side of WTC 7. It's not that the official story is they collapsed because of fires, they collapsed because of structural damage and then fires that softened the it, the inter internal structure leading towards collapse. So they're not really presenting the official theory in an honest way. They're presenting a caricature, which then allows people to use the canard, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Mm. Also ignores the fact that once the, the jet fuel started the fires, but they continued burning long after there's no more jet fuel, it sort of makes it sound... So I thought, they, they I actually thought you were about to launch into a, a song there. Since the world's not. been t turning, we didn't start the fire. No, but it was always burning, only it wasn't until some planes crashed into the damn thing. But yeah, they, they talk about how sort of all the jet fuel would have been burned up very quickly, ignoring the fact that, well, yes, but it would have sent everything else in the building on fire anyway. But... um. 
So then they they sort of they they go further into this idea of there being additional explosions after the um, after the the planes crashed into the buildings, and so there are lots of eyewitness accounts of people talking about how they heard this, and then then they heard another explosion, and it seems fairly clear that by explosion they mean a loud bang. Um, it's the, the, they it's it's always what they heard. It's always you know I heard an, I heard another explosion, um, so it's not actually proof that there were bombs and things exploding in there it's just that there were a lot of loud bangs when buildings were uh, in the process of collapsing which is perhaps not that inexplicable and of course the old the old squibs the um the the puffs of air that can be now, seen being say, ejected out of the visually i thought that looked spectacular the way that they they have the the buildings collapsing and then they they zoom in on mm. small bits of the frame with the plumes i thought oh actually visually that looks really that good. Well. Yeah. So they mentioned those ones, um, and then they, they do actually make some um, some attempt at how did the bombs get into the buildings in the first place, which is one of the accusations always. Um, but they do point out that apparently security details and and sweeps by bomb sniffing dogs had recently been uh, called off in the World Trade Center, and by who? The person who ran the security company, one Marvin Bush, brother of George W. Bush. Um, I've, I've what I have to say from the photo is the least bushy Bush I've seen. Mm, that's true. I, um, I, I've, I've seen elsewhere they've talked about, apparently they sort of overplay the role that Bush had. He, he sort of, he was in charge of a security company that did some of the security for 9-11, but the idea that he would have had the authority to do that was questioned. But anyway, they, they make the claim that that's there. Then they start talking about how no one was allowed into Ground Zero afterwards, which I didn't... Uh, no one except for FEMA or something like that, I'm not sure. Um, which And I was a little bit disappointed that um, this is pre, pre-nanothermite, which was always my favourite aspect of the whole thing. Apparently nanothermite makes an appearance in the final cut, but not in the second edition. But it did make me wonder if no one but FEMA was allowed to get into Ground Zero, then how did that dude know there were nanothermite residues? I stuff believe left in the collection of nanothermite occurred well after Ground Zero was was made relatively open to the public. So no one was allowed into it in the immediate aftermath. But the rebuilding of the site actually occurred after a significant amount of time later. I don't know how to use after twice in the same sentence there. And I think he got the nanothermite during that time. Right. Well, you heard it here first. Nanothermite is real. I was wrong. Um, no, as you know, I, I, I don't want to endorse that. Okay. That's when the samples were collected that claimed to contain nanothermite. I'll, I'll, make, I'll modify that. The person got the samples that nanothermite is allegedly in during that time. Right. You heard it here first. Nanothermite is real, says Dr. M. Dentith. Now, it's true. I, I, I have changed my mind. People got to me very quickly. They did. So, so from here it moves on to Flight 93, the one that now, crashed in Pennsylvania. Now, we should note that this is where the various different versions of the documentary change mm. somewhat dramatically, in that the first edition, the fate of Flight 93, the one that didn't crash into a building, was it was shot down over Pennsylvania. So it wasn't a controlled crash by the passengers taking control. It was shot down. In the second edition, we get a quite elaborate conspiracy theory about it landing at Cleveland Hopkins Airport and people being taken off the planes, which then led to me asking, so where are they now? In the final cut, it just doesn't say much other than we don't know what the fate of Flight 93 actually is. Hmm. So in this version, uh, again, it sort of harks back to the uh, Pentagon stuff about claiming that the crash site of Flight 93, there were no plane plane wreckage to be seen, uh, various eyewitness quotes about how um, uh, there, there was there just seemingly nothing there. Um, uh, and then it... So, so yeah, the story it has is that Cleveland Hopkins, Cleveland Hopkins Airport had just been cleared out due to a bomb threat, supposedly, and two planes, a Delta Airlines plane and one identified as Flight 93. I don't 
they just say that. I don't quite know what that means, how this plane is identified as that. But supposedly these two planes landed at Cleveland Hopkins Airport, and the people in the Delta flight had to wait quite a long time before they were able to get off the plane and have something to them, but supposedly the people in this mysterious other plane were ushered off and into some other area really quickly. Within the space of an hour. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, it was all... I'm not surprised they got rid of that bit because that seemed the, the the shakiest. They just sort of say, oh, here's this plane. They say it was identified as Flight 93, but without saying how or why or what that means because you'd think that would be a bigger deal, but I don't know. Um, so, and, and it says... It goes on to sort of say so that obviously none of the planes involved in 9-11 were really there, but it doesn't... So it's, it's suggested that the Pentagon, there was no plane, it was a missile, although that was kind of shaky it's now claimed that there was no plane crash that the, the plane crash in pennsylvania was faked and that flight 93 was diverted somewhere else never actually gives an alternative for planes for the the twin towers except as you say that they there's some eyewitness accounts that suggest they weren't commercial airliners but that was fairly vague um they actually say at one point literally say unfortunately there's no way to know what really happened to the actual planes um, don't say anything about the passengers at all. Like at no point do they say, so what happened to these mysterious, to the passengers on these flights who are now no longer there, who they would have you believe all died, but it just doesn't come up at all. The uh, I did notice it had the claim that um, they couldn't find any of the black boxes or they did find that terrorist's passport is weird if true. Now, admittedly, as we will see in a paper we'll be looking at relatively soon, which is on the role of fortuitous data in certain conspiracy theories. The passport thing is kind of interesting in that it is quite convenient to the official theory that a passport belonging to a terrorist was found in the rubble around the Twin Towers in a way that we don't find a lot of the passports, although other passports, I believe, were found as well. So I can kind of see people going, this data is awfully convenient but at the same time most people don't understand just how hard it is to burn books mm. and again that is um, presented completely out of context as you say if it turned out that a lot of documents from the planes were, were found then that would be completely unremarkable but we just don't know all it says is these big solid black boxes were supposedly destroyed but this little passport wasn't and, and moves on, and where it moves on to is suppose is this, the the phone calls that were made from the various planes, because all up there were there were, I think sixty odd um, calls by people on the planes knowing they were in some serious trouble, calling their loved ones back on the ground, either to tell them what was going on, or in some in the more tragic cases to sort of bid them goodbye. Um, now this is actually one of the few cases where they honestly did make an, an actual positive claim. They did say at some point all of the cell phone calls were fake. They actually using made voice that claim. morphing technology. Voice morphing technology. They were faked to um, make the. Now, as people have sort of said, one of the things is, of course, that in some of the calls you can hear other people's voices in the background. So they must have been using multiple voice morphing technologies to get all the people on there. Um, they do a bit of like they, they play a couple of the calls. Uh, there's one from um, a, a stewardess who's telling, sort of calling nine nine one one or someone like that, um, saying what's happened. You know, here's what's happened on the plane. Someone's been stabbed. There's some terrorists. Um, oh, wait, she, and knows, they she, knows. She, she doesn't say they're terrorists. Said, oh no, there, a, a stabbing has occurred. Mm. There's smoke in the business class part of the plane, and the pilot is not responding. And so Dylan yes, Avery so goes. Actually use the word. Yeah, yeah, Dylan Avery goes. This she doesn't sound as if she's panicking. And I was listening to that, going, "Well, it's an air steward. They are trained to react in mm. an emergency in a calm and methodical fashion. So of course she's not going to sound." as if she's frightened out of her wits. Even if she is, she is presenting calmly to passengers. Mm. Yeah, so he's sort of, you know, it's like, you know, where was all the screaming? But uh, And then he he, um, he talks about one, he, he has a clip from one guy who called his mother 
and um, introduced himself using his full name, which, which is a weird thing to do, perhaps. You, you, you wouldn't... I, I, when, when I ring up my mother, I don't say, hi, it's Joshua Edison. Oh, but, see, but I do. When I ring up my mother, I say, hi, it's Joshua Joshua Addison. I do that all the time. Well, that's 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 your business. Apparently, I've actually then seen um, an interview with the guy's mother, where she says that actually that was ha- that, like he um, he did a lot of sort of business calls on the phone, and that was it was just kind of a habit he was in. Normally, in his business calls, he did have to introduce himself by his first name, and presumably in the stressful situation. Um, he just did that out of habit, not thinking that it was a weird way to talk to your own mother. But she did sort of point out that this is actually the way he would generally start a phone conference, a phone call. But the interesting thing was, though, they do a lot of talk about how it wouldn't have been possible for cell phones to get decent reception. And some um, experimenter guy did where he found the chances of connecting a cell phone call at those altitudes were very, very small. And then pointing out that some years after 9-11, Aeroplanes started putting sort of cell phone towery type technology in their planes so that cell phone calls would be more possible there by suggesting that it was never possible in the first place. And I thought was, hang on, we just heard that you you just played us tape from the call where the guy said, I'm calling from an earphone, which were what planes used to have in them before it was possible to make cell phone. There were specific phones built into the aeroplanes that allowed you to place calls for a fair amount of money, I assume. Which we'll come back to in just a second. And indeed, so so the whole cell phone thing was you know didn't apply there. And indeed, apparently, almost all of the calls were made from earphones, not from cell phones. So that whole cell phone calls couldn't have got through argument is kind of um, kind of irrelevant anyway. And this is relevant to our discussion because Avery goes, look, most of these phone calls are really really short. Surely, if you're trying to get through to a loved one, you want to talk to them for quite some time. These calls are being made by earphones. Earphones are expensive to use. So people have put have tried to get credit on or have a bit of free credit to use on the flight. So they put through a quick call, and that explains why the phone calls are so short. Mm. And then yes, at the end mate, so so basically makes the positive claim the cell phone calls were all fake, and then brings up the idea of voice morphing technology, which does exist. I don't know if it's good enough to fool a person's loved one, even these days, but it does exist. But yes, so that, that's their claim, that it was all fake. Um, and then moves on again to talking about the terrorists, where it basically lists all the supposed terrorists involved in the various attacks and various flights, um, and lists out nine of them who are supposedly still alive. And again, basically just sort of says... Um, this news agency said this one was alive. This guy's father said he was alive. This person says they're alive. Um, lists them all out and then moves on again. Now, that's the way this film one goes. interesting thing here is that our good friend Robert Muller gets referenced mm. here. Kind of forgot yes. that he was involved back in yep. the day with this particular event. I mean, there are two things to note about this. One, it's not surprising that terrorists entering a country might enter under false identities. And two... There's a kind of racist assumption operating here that people in the Middle East must all have individual names, none of which sound like someone else's name. Mm. It does, and it does mention the point that Robert Mueller indeed said that in the report, which named all the terrorists, said they can't be sure the list is a hundred percent accurate. This was the best of the the best intelligence they had, which is fair enough. Um, now we're nearly at the end. This, uh, after going through the terrorists, it finally gets to the point of motive, of why why would people have done this? And again, even at this point, it never actually specifically, explicitly says, this is who did it, and this is why they did it. It just brings up basically a bunch of people who stood to gain. Um, so it, it brings back the idea that those put options that... Um, put on Boeing stock and various um, airline stocks. Um, it mentions something which I think also was in the, the bit at the beginning about the man who owned the World Trade Center and the big insurance policy he had put on it. Um, it suggests that companies with offices in the Twin Towers had put through dodgy, fraudulent transactions just before the attacks occurred, um, implying that all the records that would have proved these dodgy transactions happened would be destroyed, 
which kind of implies that the companies were directing their own employees in the buildings to make these things, knowing they were about to be killed in a fiery thing. But anyway. And also suggesting that whatever these transactions were must have only been occurring in the building, because otherwise there'd be records on the other end of the transaction. I think so. Yeah. And then the gold. Tell me about the gold. So there's this story that gets told towards the end about people going into the tunnels beneath the World Trade Center where there's a large amount of gold in storage and then being basically pushed away by the feds. And then the story then goes slightly larger by claiming that no one really knows how much gold bullion was being stored in the World Trade Center at the time of its destruction. And once again, it makes doesn't state anything explicitly. It just suggests to the audience that maybe the Twin Towers were blown up for to hide the fact they had taken gold out of vaults and put it into storage beneath the Twin Towers where they'd be able to get at it once the Twin Towers had been destroyed. Mm. There was talk of um, yeah, a tunnel underneath where they found uh, a dump truck that had been abandoned there that seemed to have been car- carrying away a whole lot of gold, which I'm pretty sure was the plot of Die Hard 3. I was, I was getting very strong Die Hard 3 vibes off of this part of the film. But yes, the idea of the, the gold, there was gold that went missing implying that this the one of the many reasons this was done was to i mean i suppose they're not they don't necessarily have to say that 9-11 was done specifically to destroy these records and hide these things and steal this gold and cash in on the insurance it could simply be it was done for one of these reasons and then various high up elites who knew about it used the opportunity to do a bunch of other stuff as well but so finally it gets into of course the political motive which basically basically points out that on the back of 9-11 Bush got to do the stuff that he'd been wanting to do all along that indeed as the Project for the New American Century said, um, was, was it Cheney or Rumsfeld? I think it was Rumsfeld who had the actual quote about the stuff that we want to happen will take a long time to happen unless there's some sort of a Pearl Harbor incident. Yes, um, yes. And, now, and, what and, is interesting here is that they kind of commit the fallacy of confusing causation with correlation, because it's true. Everything they list that happened after 9-11 did occur. So it's correlated with the event. America used 9-11 as a pretext for doing a lot of things overseas. But correlation doesn't tell us that they then caused that event to make these events occur. And equally likely, and in fact some people would say more likely alternative hypothesis here, is that the people behind the project for a new American century went actually... This event we had no control over has given us exactly what we want. We're going to use this to then legitimize what we're going to do now. It requires no forethought to make the event occur. It just requires you to be opportunistic and go, oh, now this has happened. We finally get everything we always wanted. Hmm. Um, And that's basically where everything closes it it says you know there's been this horrible fraud perpetrated against the american people and we should be angry about it good night tip your waitresses so obviously i think you can probably tell that our opinion of this film was not exceptionally favorable uh what would your final rating be rating uh out of so what are we rate rate, rating it i don't know out of 10 thumbs up thumbs down um can I give it 10 thumbs downs? Sure. Works for me. Actually, I think a more interesting thing is to ask what Dylan Avery thinks of Loose Change mm. after all this time. Because he was he was interviewed around about the time that the second edition HD recut remastered Force Awakens came out. And he was asked by the journalist, do you still think 9-11 was an inside job? And his response was... I can't answer that, because Inside Job has a stigma, so I can't without being set up for something. Directors make movies, then they make more movies. They're capsules of where the world is and where the director is at the time. Are there a pile of questions about 9-11 that have yet to be addressed? Yeah, 
I think that's absolutely fair to say. If I had known that by putting out that film, I was going to have to spend the rest of my life still having to say whether I agree with it, I don't know if I would have. I was angry about something at the time, and that was my way of expressing it. Which is, I think, the clearest indication of a director going, yeah, I I can't disown the film, because it's the reason why I've got a career. At the same time, I wish I had never made it. Yes, I mean, it sounds like he, he was hoping it would start his career, and yet it basically just became his career. That's the only thing um, anyone's interested about. Yeah, I mean, I thought calling the thing at the start of the film a bit of a gish gallop, the whole film itself was really kind of an extended gish gallop. It's everything is just brought up and then it moves on to the next thing. There's no context. There's very little, like, actual evidence. Um it's very selective there's a lot of cherry picking there's a lot of the apparently a lot of the quotes they use there's some fairly serious quote mining going on i've i've seen one sort of deep dive into one of the quotes they had a guy who a medical examiner or someone who was looking at the the crash site in pennsylvania of flight 93 um where he the the, the quote is made to sound like he found no bodies there at all, and yet when you read the full thing, he's basically sort of saying there were no there were there were no live bodies. You know, essentially, found a whole bunch of dead people, um, or bits of dead people, is all there were. Um, so th- there's yeah, it's certainly very selective in its evidence. Um, if I were if I were the sort of bitchy film reviewer that I don't think they really have anymore, a bit of a, a bit of a Jay Sherman, if you will. I would say loose change, more like loose stool, which would be a reference to diarrhea and therefore not complimentary of my opinion of the film. I have to say, I don't think that they'll be knocking on your door when they relaunch The Critic. Oh, that's a shame. Well, they, they, they can knock on my door to tell me that they're relaunching The Critic. That will make me very happy. Oh, actually, now now I feel I need to rewatch The Critic. Then again, it's always the right time to rewatch The Critic. Exactly, it is. Uh, and I think it's also the right time for us to finish this episode. Um, that, that, that's loose change for you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we watched it so you don't have to. And I kind of wish that we hadn't watched it. I, I, I would have preferred to have done something else with yeah, those, those was, 90 it minutes. Was, it's but... just a... There's no argument to the film. No. It is just suggestion. There's very little, this is what really happened, let's do a deep dive. So, to a large extent... Having seen, say, Richard Gage give a two-hour talk on the collapse of the Twin Towers, he also doesn't want to get into why it occurred. But at least he gives you an argument as to how it occurred. This film doesn't want to say who's really behind it, or give you an account of how it was achieved. It just wants to wriggle its eyebrows at you and go suggestive isn't Mm. it come back to my place maybe we'll talk about it some more and frankly i was not seduced by this film i thought this film might be an incel and so i just walked away indeed and yet it basically sort of set the standard for all all the conspiracy type documentaries that came after it well except that maybe it didn't set the standard maybe it was the most polished version Mm. of that standard. Because as I said, Alex Jones had been producing documentaries for a while that kind of have the same style, just that they never became the breakout hit that Loose Change did. Loose Change was an example of a form of its time. It was simply the first one to actually go mainstream. Mm. Yeah, and people have said it, it does a really good job of making an amateur production look professional, like it was done, it was made for a couple of thousand dollars or something like that, because it's basically all just stock footage in an editing suite is all you really need to do, but it is... And um, the soundtrack. I actually think the soundtrack plays a very big role mm. because things are kind of timed to go along with the music. Yeah, it really does set a tone as well. So, yeah, I mean, certainly significant, just not very good. No. So... I think that's all we have to talk about. But uh, if you're a patron, what what can our patrons look forward to this week? We're going to briefly review the latest episode of Reply All that talks about the origins of QAnon and who Q might be. Because, of course, 
Everyone seems to have a theory as to who Q is. Everyone also seems to disagree with everyone else about it. We will talk about a conviction from the Panama Papers leak. Remember that thing which investigated Star Wars villain Mossack Fonseca? Mm, I thought Giancarlo Esposito did a very good job of playing him in The the Mandalorian. Uh, I couldn't get to the end of it. I found the deep dive into journalistic standards and the way you investigate tax evasion to be too much like the first Star Wars prequel for my taste. Mm, Fear, that's fair. We'll be looking at a mysterious article retraction from the New Zealand Herald. The fact the Trump campaign spent at least 35 million US dollars to try and deter African-American voters. The fact that some of Trump's tax returns have been released. You might have heard about that one. a pop culture update about what I think to be a British classic and something that Josh really didn't have much time for. Not much time, no. So, um, if, if you'd like to hear about any of that and you are a patron, then you're gonna. If you're not a patron, you can be one. Uh, and what, what better day to do it than International Podcast Day, although, of course, by the time you're listening to this, it won't be. But you, you, get, you get the idea of what I'm saying. Uh, go to Patreon and search for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. And if you don't want to be a patron at all, um, well, that's fine. You're listening to us on this the International Day of Podcasts. So, so bless you. And uh, thank you for being our audience. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Yes. Mm. Yes, we did. Yep. Anyway, that is all I believe we have for this week. So it simply remains for me to say goodbye. And for me to say goodbye. Classic. been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mrx dented which is written researched, recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts mikey fluids and conspiracism Remember, Soylent Green is meeples.